Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're going to be in the book of Galatians this morning. Galatians 1, 1 through 5 is going to be our text. But as you guys are turning there, I wanted to, to first uh, give you guys a, a big thank you as a church. You may not know this, but the last... Uh, Actually, I've been here four years now. I have also been in seminary uh, studying different things. Uh, Last spring, I spent uh, the majority of my semester in the book of Galatians. And ever since then, I've been kind of marinating and just kind of staying in the book of Galatians. Uh, God has really just kind of put that that book uh, in my mind as of late. Uh, However, you know, Greek and Galatians isn't the only thing I've been learning at seminary. There's been things such as like theology, church history, pastoral ministry, preaching, and much more. So much of what, uh, you know, a lot of my growth I attribute to, to you as a church because you've invested in me and helped me go to seminary and so that I could learn to, and, and what it means to be a better pastor. So I do thank you uh, for the privilege of helping me uh, learn and, and have an education like that. So this nugget of corporate wisdom has been thrown around, and I, I believe it's true, and it's, and it's this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So, yeah, there we go. There's my message. All right, now we can go home. No. Um, yeah. So that, that nugget of corporate wisdom and business wisdom isn't just good for running a successful business or education, but it can be applied to church in our faith. So what is the main thing about our Christian faith? That we need to keep the main thing. So in other words, what's the main message of the Christian faith? Well, it's the gospel. You know, the gospel saves sinners, it gives Christians their identity, it restores people to God, and much more. So without our central message, our church would cease to exist. We'd just be another social club without the gospel. So when Paul set set out to write this letter to the churches of Galatia, it was because of the gospel. The gospel was under attack by these Judaizers. So Paul set out to defend the gospel against this group of people called the Judaizers. So let me kind of explain a little bit about what the Judaizers were doing um, you can get this in the book of Galatians, but let me just give you a little bit of an overview of what was going on uh, in this church. So there, these individuals, these, these Jews, they came, they came from Jerusalem up to this area of Galatia, and they started saying things to these Gentile believers that, hey, look, you know, what Paul taught you about the gospel was great and all, but if you really want to, to take your Christian walk up to the next level, you need to start following the law, and you need to get circumcised. In other words, the, the gospel is good for kind of like the doorway into getting you into the people of God, but it's not that, that thing that sustains you and carries you throughout life. Now, before we get to our text this morning, I did, I did want to kind of mention, by way of reference, I think sometimes when, when we Christians, and have been Christians and maybe grown up in church for a while, when we hear the word gospel, inwardly, we begin to tune out. Like, okay, I've heard this before, I've heard this gospel message before, I don't really need to listen. However, there's no getting over the gospel. Tim Keller writes this in speaking of the book of Galatians. Paul outlines the bombshell truth that the gospel is the A 
to Z of the Christian life. It's not only the way to enter the kingdom, it's the way, it's the way to live as a part of the kingdom. The simple truth that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z, that Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians. I was actually reading uh, some Martin Lloyd-Jones last night, so you've got to go read your good English-British guys every once in a while. And he actually said, like, if we as Christians, as believers, can't get excited about the gospel anymore, he actually, it gets to the point where you really need to wonder if you really understood the gospel to begin with. Because as a believer, when you hear the gospel, there's something within us that ought to go amen and just get excited about hearing the gospel being proclaimed. And, and if that's not enough for you, you have, I had a wise professor who once told me this, and um, this is a saying he had us memorize, and I think it was very wise. He said this, every truth you know can be plumbed deeper, applied wider, and seen in coherent relation with other truths. And I think he is, tr- he is right, and it's one of those things that I think we can apply to the gospel. So what does it mean to plumb the, de- the depths of the gospel, to go deeper, to apply it wider in life, and, and you know, see it and how it relates to other things in life? So maybe that's what you want to do this morning, is as we're kind of going through Paul's presentation of the gospel, maybe say like, okay, what does it mean for me to apply the gospel at work, or, or in my family, or what does it mean for, for me to, to be delivered? What does that really mean to be a delivered person. So as we're going through the gospel this morning and just kind of going through Paul's argument, maybe be thinking through that uh, in your mind. So the Galatian church here was, was really being tempted and pulled away from Paul's simple gospel message into what the Judaizers were, te- were teaching. So with that in mind, let's read our text. Galatians 1, uh, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, But through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So considering kind of where the church of Galatia is at, it makes sense that Paul begins his letter by saying, okay, here's the gospel. As a matter of fact, verses 1 through 5, it's actually one sentence in Greek. Now, if you're, you know, in an English class, you'd get in trouble because that's a run-on. But in Greek, you can do that. It's one complete thought for Paul. So Paul, first, he begins with his credentials and authority for addressing the Galatians. He writes in verse 1 that he is called to be an apostle through Jesus Christ and, and God the Father. Now, it's interesting, if you look at some of Paul's other letters, he'll, he'll address them like, okay, I'm a servant. Actually, the word is doulos. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. A lot of his other letters, he addresses uh, the church or another person as, as a servant of Jesus Christ. But here, he wants to insist on his authority and say, look, I am coming as God's divinely appointed apostle. So, where we see this is in the book of Acts. So I thought it was helpful maybe to go back and see Paul's call into ministry and why he says what he does say in verse 1 here. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias came in and laid hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Paul then is specially commissioned by, by Jesus himself as an apostle, which means one who is sent out. So he's claiming this authority because of the seriousness of the Galatians' problem. You know, so he asserts then that he's not through, from men or through men. So what he's doing there, he's like, look, it's not like a bunch of us guys got together and say, hey, you know, this would really be a good idea if we came up with this gospel message, and, and we're going to go take this idea that we kind of came up with in this room and go teach it to people. He's like, no, that's not how I was commissioned. It's actually from God himself. So he wants to make sure from the very beginning that what he says is coming through divine authority. And it's not just himself who's commissioned specially, but it's also his message. Paul would say this a little later on in chapter 1, verse 11. He said, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So Paul is defending his, gospel, his credentials as an apostle appointed by God, and not just that, but he's also defending his message. He's saying, look, this message that I am delivering to you is from God. So essentially then, Paul defines the gospel in this section. This is my kind of summary statement of what Paul is saying, and I hope, I think it's going to be here on the board, and I'll say it a couple times. So this is how Paul defines the gospel. Our gracious God, granting us peace with him through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, for our deliverance from evil, according to his will, for his glory. So let me say it again. So our gracious God, granting us peace with him through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, for our deliverance from evil, according, according to his will, for his glory. So before I really begin to unpack that statement and, and kind of go through each phrase and clause and, and, and really understand what Paul is describing, let me kind of give you what I think Paul is doing. Um, U.S. Treasury agents are trained to spot counterfeits in a very interesting way. They don't give them a bunch of counterfeit bills to study. What they do is they give them the original. So they have to really study and get to know the original dollar bill extremely well. So, so you get to know the original so well that when the counterfeit comes along, instantly you're like, ah, that's a fake. And I think that's what Paul is doing here in the book of Galatians. He's like, okay, look, I'm reminding you of the gospel message so that when that fake comes along, you're going to be, you know, instantly be able to go, ah, that's, that's not right. That's a, that's a fake, that's a false gospel. So the Paul is training the Galatian church in this. So in particular, verses 3 through 5 is where I really think Paul is unpacking the gospel. So he begins, when speaking about the gospel, with grace to you. So human salvation, first and foremost, is an act of grace by God. So grace is one of those words that we sing about, we talk a lot about in our Christian circles, but too often we forget about what, what it means and what it, what it is that we're talking about when we're talking about the grace of God. Uh, when I was a child, I learned a definition of grace, which is getting what I don't deserve. You know, so it's me getting something that I really didn't earn or, or deserve. Or another way that you can define it is God's unmerited favor. So it's not like you worked up to get God's grace and love on you, but it was unmerited, and he decided to, to show favor to you. So at the core of grace, then, is, is knowing that God is not required to act on our behalf. God didn't have to do that. So rather, God chose to save us because of his great love and mercy. Uh, Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul is kind of giving a synonym of grace here with, with gift. A gift that is earned is no longer a gift. 
You know, how silly would it be for that, that kid to say, you know, like, you know what, I really want a good Christmas present this year, so I'm going to take the trash out every day, and maybe, just maybe, my parent will get me a really good Christmas present. I mean, that, if a child does it, that really isn't a, a present anymore or a gift. It really is a wage, something that they've earned through their works. So it's a similar thing with God. God gives us the gospel and gives us Jesus and salvation as a gift. We cannot earn and deserve good news. It's an act of grace. So not only is the gospel a gracious act of God, God didn't need to do it, but he did it as an act of grace, but it also grants us peace from God. Now, kind of in this idea of peace is that we were at war with God or opposed to God. Otherwise, we wouldn't really have any need of peace. So why, why in the world do we need peace? Well, it's because of the evil and sinfulness of humanity. Uh, if you would read elsewhere in Paul, Romans 1, uh, 1, chapters 1 through 3, Paul argues that all human beings are sinful for God. Uh, he writes this that in 3, 19 through 20, Every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sights since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what Paul is saying here is like, look, the, the law is out there, and it, and it serves universally to show us our sin and show us our own evil. So God's disposition, his stance towards humanity then, is, is one of wrath. And when we talk about God's wrath, we don't mean like he has a hot temper and he's going off the handle. Rather, we mean that, that God is just in his, uh, in his stance towards humanity of, of judgment. Isaiah 64, 6-7 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So surely then God is, is just in his judgment on us. You know, there might be someone thinking to himself today that, you know, really I'm not that bad of a person. I don't really sin all that much, and I do more good things than bad things. So let me first kind of address that. Um, just for the sake of argument, let's say that you only commit one sin a day. Now really, I, would, I think most of us probably sin more than one sin a day, but just for the sake of argument, let's just say one sin a day. Well, if you live 70 years, how many sins would you have committed? I did the math. My math people out here could probably do it for you too. It's over 27,000 sins. So when God looks upon you in judgment and sees thousands upon thousands of sins, will he find you guilty or not guilty? Or if that, if that an analogy doesn't work for you, maybe this will. I've never had a speeding ticket in my life. I've been, I'm 29, never had a speeding ticket. It is possible to go through life without a speeding ticket, I think. I better be careful saying that because I know we have some state patrol officers there. So now it's like got a big target on my car now. But let's suppose one day I'm going, you know, 50 miles an hour through a 35 mile an hour zone. And so, you know, the officer comes up and he begins to talk with me and I give him my defense. My defense is this, you know, you see, sir, I've had a clean driving record up to this date. I have never broken the law and I've never had a ticket. So surely because of all my law keeping in the past, I don't deserve to get this speeding ticket. What do you think the officer is going to do? Well, if he's being just, he's going to write me that ticket because I deserved it because I was speeding. So to say then that, that God is not just in judging us for the, for the wrong and the sins that we commit is foolish. We know that's not how our world works. So how are we going to receive this 
you know, peace from God. So we've kind of explained the problem, why we are opposed to God, but how do we get that peace that Paul is talking about in verse 3? Well, Paul said in verse 3 that it's through the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. So sinners are part of the, the evil age that, that he explains, and we're deservedly under God's judgment. As Paul explains here, God, Jesus gave himself for our sins as a substitute for our punishment. Uh, Paul explains a little more detail in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 5, verses 6, six through 9. For a while we were still weak. At the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So kind of see what Paul is saying here. God didn't wait for humanity to clean up his act. You know, it wasn't like he was just sitting back and like, all right, come on, get better, get better. All right, now, now I can save you. No, God wasn't doing that. He, while we were still opposed to God, God decided to, to save us. You know, when you're at war, you don't go and die in your enemy's place. You kill your enemies. Yet God turned the world upside down in sending his son to die for us when we were opposed to God and God's enemies. He didn't wait for us to get better. He, Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. And therefore, we can be saved from the wrath of God. So how did Jesus do that? How did Jesus take our place, take our sins in our place? Isaiah 53, 4-6 says this, Surely he, meaning Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So note the last phrase there, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ voluntarily took the punishment of our sins. That transaction occurred on the cross. This is why John the Baptist, when he first sees Jesus on the scene, he, he sees Jesus walking and he goes, ah, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, in the Old Testament, the Lamb was a sacrifice provided for atonement, atonement being a payment for sins. And so when John points Jesus out as the, the Lamb of God, he's saying like, look, that's the individual who's going to make the full price for our sins. And so because of that, we can now have peace with God. And I hope you notice quickly that we receive peace from God our Father in Jesus Christ. And so one of the reasons we can call God our Father is that now through the cross, we can be a part of God's family because he's adopted us. You know, Paul would pick up this theme a little later on in the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Youth, this should be familiar. We read this this morning. But when the fullness of time had come, God the Father had sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So God the Father then becomes our Father through Jesus Christ. So not only did did God restore his, his enemies, but he also made us sons. So through Jesus and the initiative of God the Father, we can now come to God as our Father, as Paul writes. We were spiritual orphans, and yet now we can be, have a family and home with God. So, so far in verse 3, 
we've seen this so far, that we have grace in the gospel, peace with him in the gospel, and adoption in the gospel. In verse 4, I want to kind of look at a couple more key words and phrases. So first, in verse 4, I want you to see that, that Jesus gave himself to deliver us. You know, one of the things that, that you see uh, in, the old, uh, in the Old and New Testament is this theme of deliverance, but not just that. It's also something that uh, I think some of our older, like Puritans and other older Christians picked up on really well. Uh, one of my favorite books is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read that book, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy and read it. It's one of those great books that's out there. But when Christian, the main character of the book, reaches the cross, he's at a place that they call deliverance. And at the place of deliverance, Christian experienced various forms of being delivered, spiritually and emotionally, for he had been burdened with sin. If you remember, he was carrying around this heavy burden with sin. What happened at the place of deliverance, the, the burden was loosed, it was pulled off, and the ground swallowed it whole. So in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were a delivered people. You know, they were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and God delivered them from Pharaoh and into the Promised Land. And the New Testament picks up this theme about the people of God, that the people of God are a delivered people. Uh, in particular, view in this passage is that we are being pulled out of this present evil age. So not only were we in, in bondage to our own sin, but we were also in bondage to Satan. So much like God did with Pharaoh and Israel, through Jesus' blood as our Passover lamb, we can now be pulled out of our captivity to this present evil age. So therefore, as a people of God, we, we experience gospel freedom. We are free from sin, free from the burden of keeping the law for salvation, free from Satan, and free from the, the wicked age that we live in. We are also free to love God and to love people. Paul explains it in a little more detail in chapters 4 and 5, but one verse in chapter 5 sums it up. In verse 1, he says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Um, you know, when I, when I was preparing this this week, there was something that, that God kind of put on my heart that I wanted to share with you. But maybe if you're a Christian here today and you haven't really maybe thought about being delivered, and perhaps you're here struggling with the habitual sin, Jesus came and delivered you from the power and authority of sin in your life. And because of that, you don't have to live in that same pattern of behavior and keep going back to the same sorts of sins that you used to struggle with. Jesus came to deliver you from that, and he gave you the power and authority over the sin in your body. And when I think about that, it's, it's a great encouragement for me because it's not, when it comes to those sins that I struggle with, it's not try harder, but it's rather more gospel. What I need really is another dose of the gospel to deliver me from that sin, not me trying to work really hard and do better, but it's rather to go back to the gospel and remind myself that Christ has delivered me from that. So Paul, again, going through this uh, book, and we're going to look at this a little bit more next week, but they were be- these Galatians were beginning to desert the freedom of the gospel and to return to slavery under the law. And the Paul is warning and warning the Galatians, hey, don't surrender the freedom that Jesus delivered to you. Don't go back to that old way of living, those, that slavery that you were under. So Paul, in his description of the gospel here, so the gospel brings us peace and grace and deliverance, but why did God bring salvation? What was his, you know, what was his reasoning? Well, it's because in verse 4, Paul writes, it's because of the will of our God and Father. So the reason God made salvation possible is because he willed it. He wanted it. Uh, We need to remind ourselves here that God was not 
under any duty or obligation to save humanity. God was behaving perfectly free to provide salvation. So salvation is solely possible because God wanted to give it. So there's no room for pride in one's own salvation. Like, you know, because I'm a pretty good person, God needed to save me. God's not obligated to save you and I. We are only saved because of the goodness and pleasure of God. Peter, in his sermon in Acts 2, says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So God both willed and planned our salvation before the foundation of the world. God willed and he wanted to save humanity. And so that God chose to save anybody is a gracious act, gracious and loving act by him. God had every right to destroy sinful man. Uh, Going back to Isaiah chapter 53, uh, verse 10 says this, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, we shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So God the Father willed to save humanity through the death of his Son. Now there's not, some of our critics allege Christianity of, you know, like, well, what Christianity really is about is cosmic child abuse. You know, God the Father just is mean, and he decided to to beat up on Jesus. Well, that would be the case if Jesus himself did not willingly submit himself to his Father and say, look, I, I want to do that uh, because that is what pleases you. So Jesus prays this in the Garden of Gethsemane in, in, Mark, in Matthew 26. Jesus prays this, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. When Jesus says this cup, he means the cup of God's wrath, that storing up of God's wrath. Uh, in 26:42, Jesus also says this, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, meaning the cup of his wrath, your will be done. So Jesus is praying, like, look, if there's any other way to accomplish salvation, let's do it. However, salvation was only possible through the death of Christ. So he prayed, not, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus willingly took the cup of God's wrath on the behalf of sinful humanity so that we could have the righteousness of God. So in this idea of the will of God in our salvation, we kind of have what some theologians have called the covenant of redemption. So in eternity past, God covenanted, as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the Father would send the Son and the power of the Spirit for the salvation of humanity. And the Son willingly submitted to the will of God the Father and accomplished our salvation. So salvation wasn't something that God came up with on the cuff. It wasn't like Adam and Eve fell in sin and God was like, man, what am I going to do now? Man, that's, that, I don't know. Rather, it was a carefully planned out and thought out thing. God willed it from the very beginning. He ordained, he directed, and he moved history to the end. The gospel, our salvation from beginning to end, is only possible because it was God. So as Paul begins, as he moves through his gospel crescendo, he, he begins by reminding us it's grace and peace from God, deliverance by the death of his son, God's will and our salvation, to God's motivation. So why did God will to make all of this possible? Well, Paul concludes, this is all for the glory of God. To whom be the glory forever and ever, is what he says. At the root of everything God, God does, his motivation is rooted in himself and in his own glory. By making salvation possible for people, God receives the glory. 
so glory in Scripture kind of has two primary senses or two meanings in Scripture. In the Old Testament in particular, the, the first meaning was one of weightiness in the sense that, that God's word is, is a, or I mean, God himself is important and he has great weight in the universe. But the second meaning is one of brilliance and holiness and splendor. And I think Paul has that latter idea in mind, that it's God's brilliance, his holiness, and his splendor. So how does God receive the glory in the gospel? You know, I think it's because in the gospel we see two themes in particular about God meet up perfectly in the gospel. It's the intersection between God's perfect love and God's perfect justice. So through Jesus' sacrifice, we see God being fully just. Jesus voluntarily taking the weight it takes on the sin of sinners so that they can be right with God. God doesn't just like sweep sin under the rug and not really deal with sin. But on the cross, we see that God is dealing with sin severely and seriously like it deserves. However, the cross doesn't just point us to the justice of God. The cross also points us to the love of God. God wasn't required to do it, but he so loved humanity that he sent his son to save us. And they enacted their plan of salvation, the whole trinity did, so that we could be saved. So by rescuing sinners from their own destruction, God gets all the credit, all the fame, and his name and his character are exalted because God is both fully just and fully loving in the same act. So God gets all the glory beginning to end in our salvation. And the only thing that we contribute to God's gospel is our sin. Wow, we're not really contributing a whole lot. So the gospel then for us is assuredly good news. So what are we supposed to do? Now, this is all great, you might say. This is great information to take in about the gospel, Andrew. So what is it that we're supposed to do? Well, Jesus comes in on the scene in Mark 1, 15. He says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So maybe you're here today and you've never heard the gospel before, or maybe you've heard things about it but never really understood it. What you're told to do is repent and believe. So what does it mean to repent? Well, rep- repent means to turn. It means to, that you're doing one thing, and now you're going to move from that thing and, and move into another. It means to fully hate, loathe, despise your sin. Say, look, look I don't want any part of my sin any longer. I don't want that any, anymore. I want to re- turn away from that former way of life. Yet on the other side of the coin, we're to believe the gospel. And to believe means the trust. And believe, belief in Scripture means to pull, put your full weight in something. It's not just mentally saying, okay, that's true, but it's actually putting your full weight in it. Let me kind of give you an illustration that will maybe help you understand it. So if I were a parachute instructor, and I was giving you a teaching about the, this great parachute, and you're like, man, it's made out of the best quality fibers and material that are out there in this paracord, you know, could support a car and, you know, the physics of, you know, when the parachute opens and it catches the air when you're coming down, it's going to allow you to, to land safely. Well, if, if that's all I do as a parachute instructor, I haven't really exercised faith in my parachute yet. All I've done is describe the parachute to you, what the parachute's going to do. Rather, the only way as an instructor that you're going to know that I actually do trust that parachute is when I go up in a plane and I jump out of that and I pull that ripcord and the parachute carries me safely to the ground. So if you haven't done that today when it comes to your salvation, I would encourage you, do that today. Put your full weight and trust in Christ. Don't, don't just talk about it, mentally assent to it. Oh, okay, that's, that's true, but actually put your whole faith in that today. And for the Christian here today, maybe, maybe you're here today like, look, I've already repented and believed. 
well, consider the gospel. Really plumb its depth. Really, when I, this week for me personally, I was really kind of meditating on what does it mean to be a delivered person? What does it mean to be a delivered people? Maybe just plumb that. Maybe just dig into that. Like, man, what does it really look like to be a delivered person? Apply the gospel to all of your life. Don't treat the gospel kind of like that family heirloom that you put off and you kind of pull out and you look out every once in a while, but rather feast and feed on the gospel every day. The gospel isn't just that, that door that gets us into the heaven. It's rather that sustaining source and the sanctifying sureness that we have of our status before God. The gospel doesn't just get us in to God's family, but it's the fuel and mission for the Christian life. It's something that we have to keep going back to over and over and over again. So meditate on the gospel, Christian. Herald the gospel. Tell the gospel to those who do not know it. First, Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. At this moment, I would, uh, I, I would li- like to invite you to pray with me and really think about how it is that you need to respond. If you're haven't trusted in Christ yet, maybe make today the day of your salvation. And if you are a Christian, maybe today you may maybe just want to think about like, man, what is that sin that I need to be delivered from? Or what, or what is it in the gospel that I really need to be thinking about in more depth? So let's pray.